So we've been reading a book called Otaku, uh, Japan's Database Animals by Hiroki Azuma. Basically a book about Japanese nerds, kind of written in the 90s. I think it's like interesting because um, I guess this kind of uh, nerdy subcultural fixation type of character has spread around the world since then and worth talking about. So totally, yeah. we live in the land of the nerds. I think another interesting thing about it, right, is that it's it's kind of like a neat introduction to postmodernism or postmodern literary theory. Right? It's definitely the most um, non-frustrating use of um, like exposition about postmodernism that I've encountered myself. Right. Like, uh, I think yeah. Let's start by kind of talking about how he goes into. Um, where like post postmodernism as a thing fit into like kind of Japanese intellectual history because is that where you want to start or do you want to start by talking about what an otaku is? I guess okay, that makes more sense. Yeah. So uh, what's the so yeah, an otaku is a nerd. How would you uh, how would you expand on that? Yeah, it seems like an otaku is just a nerd. Like that's what we would call them here, right? And and the same, there's a similar kind of arc where they start off as, you know. Uh, nerds, and then nerds become everyone, right? Like, yeah. Um, pop culture is nerd culture, and it seems like that happened in Japan earlier than it did in North America. Yeah, like the timeline is one important thing here. So he kind of goes through historically these different stages of otaku culture, um, starting basically in the immediate post-war period or sort of, I guess, more like the 50s and 60s um, when, like, American pop culture kind of arrives in Japan and things like cartoons and comic books and stuff are, um, like, fresh and new there, right? Right. So, so an otaku is somebody who doesn't really, like, fit into the mainstream Japanese culture so much but really finds a home in that stuff, right? Is that the idea? Yeah. So like, and and at that point too, it's like mainstream Japanese culture. Like, what is that? Everyone's super depressed because they just lost like this huge war. Like the government's kind of confusing. Um, Like, you know, it's like this kind of post-fascist like reconstruction trying to fit into global world order. And people are kind of disoriented and not really sure what Japan is supposed to be anymore. Right. Um, so in a sense, everybody is available to become kind of transfixed by some kind of a weird offbeat subculture because the 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 primary superculture or the monoculture has just become too useless and, and ineffective. Right. So you have a kind of splintering of the center, the collapse of a of a sort of story that holds the whole Japanese culture together. And it's Japan is sort of rebuilding itself, right? But the otaku are not the guys who sort of become the company men, right? Uh, yeah, I would say that's probably right. Like they're like it, at this point, there are no otaku. First of all, they're not aware of what they are yet, right? But there is the development of like a kind of uh, uh, a, a Japanese industry of um, 
like cultural production that is basically just reusing American innovations like Disney cartoons, right? So, right. yeah, like remember when we were kids, like Japanese Japanimation was what we called it, right? And it was like cheap knockoff animation was kind of the way, like still the reputation that it had, right? It had like when we were kids, it hadn't really caught on yet the way it has now in in yeah. Western countries, right? So when but, we were kids was like, I mean, it was like the '90s for us, but but I and and I think probably that was that was a misnomer even then, right? But that was still the sort of reputation it had in in the West, right? Was that Japanese animation and and that kind of stuff was like knockoffs of the American and that's what we're describing here is was that was actually more like what was going on in the 50s yeah like in the 50s or 60s yeah and and in a very specific way like was it, they were dealing with it on a cheaper scale yeah they just didn't have the money that like a Walt Disney corporation would have so they were like taking american cartoon technology and like paring it down so they could do it cheaper and quicker right. and this kind of produced like like a, like a homegrown Japanese type of pop culture or cartoon culture, I guess, in this sense, in this case, which was aware of its own limitations, its own inferiority. And so there kind of developed two ways of looking at that. Like, should we just like, should we uh, uh, try and just catch up to like what the American standards are? Or does this mean something interesting that we are able to produce a, a, a homegrown Japanese culture uh, with, um, you know, kind of the scraps and, and that that Americans don't, don't consider worth using um, with a slower rate of um, uh, of cell animation or whatever, reusing backgrounds, all these cheap tricks, right? And, uh, and so the otaku, I think, is more of a product of that second attitude of, like, um, how – you know, like there's something special about the way this Japanese industry is developing and it's not special because it created something new on its own. It's special because it's able to work with like kind of a shittier version of the best. Um, and this is okay. So let's make a distinction here. Like there's on the one hand, we're tracing this story about the rise of, of Japanimation or enemy anime or whatever. Right. Yeah sort of coming out of post-war um, Japan, right? And sort of like reaching a, a kind of, like, does it have a golden age, would you say? I think it has like kind of like three uh, epochs. Okay. Three stages. And like, I don't know, I'm not really much of an anime watcher, so this is this is out of my wheelhouse. But that first era, right, where where there's, they don't have uh, as much money, but they do produce... Um, like a school of animators who are still legendary today. Okay. Right. So, uh, you know, you watch these. these if you is try this to, stuff we would know? Like, I, is this stuff that like your average North American would know, or would you kind of have to be into? I don't think so. I don't, I, I I haven't heard of hardly any of it. The only thing I have heard of is uh, um, the guy who did like Spirited Away and My Neighbor Totoro and those. Oh movies. yeah, sure. I think he kind of like started in this era and Studio Ghibli, that, that company that makes those, like it, it kind of, it goes all the, it, it's, it, it's animators and stuff go all the way back to this era. But those movies that we know, they're of a later 
like things developed further and i think they were made in the 70s and 80s the earliest ones yeah so again i'm not i'm not much of an anime like savant so i don't know what the like classics are um but there was this 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 sort of initial phase right where uh you know they were kind of doing like like japanese folklore themes a lot it looks like um kind of buddhist stuff maybe uh still like kind of fantasy but like still like kind of like rooted in um in like kind of like national myths i guess um stuff that would okay. be familiar uh uh to you know japanese viewers um in terms of their themes and stories and whatever yeah um, i was reading something about that recently actually like um it was like an online course you could sign up for that was like learn the Japanese mythology behind your favorite animated stories or whatever. Yeah, and like a lot of that stuff we'll probably get to talking about this, but a lot of that stuff that like the very first Japanese cartoon started making like left an imprint that like just they 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 will continue to repeat and repeat the same visual images and the same themes and whatever because that's well, we'll talk about this, but that's what otaku is. Um is is like the fixation on tropes and 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 themes that um become more important than you know other elements of entertainment. Okay, so that's great. So we have this sort of arc now, right? Like there's a Japanese animation movie Japanese animation sort of industry that develops in post-war Japan with the importation of American stuff, right? And and then a kind of nascent um Japanese appropriation of that and then sort of Japanification of it. <laughs> occurs right and that gets us kind of through to the 70s right and so now we've got a kind of industry that's making distinctively japanese um you know cultural artifacts cartoons and and mostly cartoons is what we're thinking of here yeah, there is it music and books and magazines um like uh uh what else um games i think right video games comic books and and board games and shit like probably this not and video games and stuff. Yet, but like um like card games and shit probably like uh, like pokemon like right. so so this kind of thing so so is this where otaku emerges and can we talk a little bit about otaku is like is you talk otaku kind of like is it is it what you would call a person or is it kind of an aesthetic or what what is otaku i think otaku uh would be the people right like and so when we say otaku we're referring to like some nerds right like we're like it's like saying nerd okay um, so it's like it it's a it's a generalized type of person um yeah so otaku i guess so i i read in the in the text there the translation is uh is something like your home so um so I guess the, the uh, and when they started to use the word, it was initially among uh, people who identified as part of a, a group of, like, you know, who, who loved a subculture. Right. So like they were saying, like, you know, me and my friends, the otaku. Right. Like uh, that, that's the way he described it anyway. So and would you be like this is just a question. Would you be like like now, you know, um we, we call each other a this nerd or that nerd, like, uh, you know, I'm a Spider-Man nerd versus a Star Wars nerd or whatever. Like, is that what it would be? Like, you'd be a, an otaku for a certain thing? Or would it be like every otaku, like otaku just means that we love these things? Uh, so uh, it's the way I'm grasping it is that, like, 
um, it, it was a it, the it started being used by people like as though they were saying like I'm a Trekkie, right? Like right. I, I go to conventions and whatever. So, so they're basically like just uh, telegraphing that like what's important to them is like this comic book world or whatever. Okay. Uh, it might be a particular one. I'm, I'm not even sure. Like it could be just more generalized than that. But it, basically, what they're saying is like yeah, like. And and he describes them as like carrying around like knapsacks full of like, yeah, I saw that. Right, they carry their home on their back. Yeah, so like they're like. Yeah, fucking hands will do it. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they have like, and you know, we have like we see all kinds of people like this today, right? Who wear like a Deadpool hat or like, uh, you know, like um, like a bunch of like uh, Avengers T-shirts and patches on their jackets or whatever like that that kind of that image of like the sort of um the uh the performing nerd right the nerd performance so like i, I think it initially comes from people saying like self-identifying anyway but eventually it came to mean something more like you know what we are now like seeing in people talk about like incels so like this kind of dangerous uh this subculture that's like um, somehow, uh, you know, stands in for like the warped, uh, you know, psycho element, uh, like something a little bit like uh, dangerous and alienated. Uh, okay, so let's talk about that shit. Can we do? Can we talk about that shit? Yeah. Okay. Let's do it. All right. So, so it goes from just a fandom, basically, of people who love you know, cartoons and identify with them and, and, and wear them on their sleeves, literally kind of thing. Right. To something that's, that's, you know, seen as dangerous or subversive or, um, worrisome in one way or another. So what happened there? Well, one thing that happened was some, some like self-identifying otaku, like, created some kind of like like showed up with a knife somewhere or like tried to blow something up i forget what the incident was um but it, it also happened sort of at a point where in japanese society there were a number of these kind of anti-social outbursts like um the Aum, i don't know how to read like pronounce japanese words but aum shinryuko cult or whatever how do you spell that uh let me look that up um okay never mind i thought you were looking at it Aum Shin Shinri Shinrikyo A U M space S H I N R I K Y O. It was a doomsday cult, uh, and it blew up a subway. Or no, it was they used the sarin gas. Holy was, shit! Sarin, yeah. Like from the rock? Yeah, yeah. Holy fuck! That's this is what we're talking about right here. Like these these are real people that use sarin gas. And then my reaction is, you mean the gas from that movie? <laughs> right. But anyway, <laughs> go on. That's fucking crazy. So this happened in, like, 1995. I think it was, like, a pretty big story. We're a little too young. Like, we wouldn't have been really watching the news. But uh, anyway, it was like, holy shit, right? And I, I think it, it kind of it, it gets brought up a bunch in this book. Uh, it, th- these guys are not otaku. They're, they're, they're a doomsday cult, but... It's sort of part of the um, the collapse of the Japanese like boom economy, and all of this like anxiety that pours out afterwards, right? So, uh, you know, you have like you have this this doomsday cult, 
you do a sarin gas attack. You have these subcultures sprouting up and becoming more visible um, that, you know, blatantly kind of uh, identify with these, you know, uh, characters and just like, you know, just animated stories or um, like uh, there's this group that he mentioned in, in one chapter of this book of like girls who like, uh, like our teen, like teenage girls dressed up on like as like kind of schoolgirl, like the classic Japanese like kind of uniform thing, out there like on the street prostituting, um, and you know this was like just something that um, the, the the optimism that you know J- Japan was like hoping to embrace throughout the eighties when they were the richest most like. Most, They're uh, a bunch of goddamn nerds holding everybody back. Is that what you're saying? Back? <laughs> well, I don't know, because like the 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 sort of dominant culture in Japan at the time, or at least in the '80s, and I could be wrong about this, but um, it, isn't it sort of like I'm the company man and I work for this corporation, and like the corporation becomes the like dominant, like they become a crazy corporate society. Right, where like you work for a company and that's your identity. Yeah, and it so, sort of like takes the place of the nation state. Right. right, and then the otaku thing is kind of going on, and these are people that aren't doing that, right? Like they're already weirdos, aren't they? Or am I wrong about that part? I'm here? not sure if that distinction is is obvious from what I've read in this book. Okay, uh, so. I do think that, you know, the people that were disturbed, right, by, by uh, uh, you know, these, like, fanboys taking, like, just suddenly becoming very visible in Japan are probably the company men who are disturbed by it. Uh, but I think, like, the, uh, the way the book is articulate, the way that this essay is articulating this is they're probably both the same thing. Yeah, that's the fucking craziest part, right? Because it's like... That and so that that brings us to the sort of postmodernism part. Bit, yeah. So right? like, okay. So like, in terms of the timeline that we've set up here, we have to go back a little bit for this postmodernism part. But it's really interesting the way he talks about it. So I've always thought of postmodernism as a term that I don't really want to know much. Like, it's frustrating to try and learn anything about what it means. It's frustrating to go to the texts. Um, people don't take it that seriously anymore. And uh, you know, you're kind of like you're pissing people off even by saying the word. Um, What uh, Azuma describes in Japan in the seventies, at the same time that postmodernism became an intellectual trend everywhere, like from starting in France and then, you know, going uh, to to the States and anywhere where there's universities. um, The, the Japanese embraced it um, way more. And the reason he gives for this is like, okay, the defeat of World War II was a major fracturing event in terms of everybody's sort of national identity, you know, uh, the the sense that there's any, like, real meaning in the world or, like, that, um, that, like, Japan could ever, like, take its place as, like, a world leader and that, like, your position as a Japanese person and Japanese citizen will be, like, kind of justified and verified by that. Uh, all goes out the window and you're completely humiliated. You have to like somehow reorient your whole worldview in order to like adjust for this defeat. And um, so 
like I just want to nail something down there, right? Like what you're describing in, in sort of Japanese history is is the collapse of the meta narrative, right? That that's how postmodernism would describe it. Is that right? Yeah. The idea that you and who you are is defined by uh, a grand theory of history that animates your existence and gives you a purpose. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, if I can, um, yeah, do a little more with that, like. Um, so, so, so the the idea of the grand narrative, right? Um, I would just call it like I, maybe metaphysics, but like it's it, it's basically the idea that you know in the modern era, like when the West was like the you know this growing force in the world, and and you know European culture was spreading everywhere and defeating all of its enemies and whatever. Um, there was like a like a an intellectual kind of tradition that tied everything, all these elements of, um, uh, of this world together. So like, you know, an economic, uh, you, you know, you, you have an understanding of, of, uh, production and like, and like the sort of technical economic aspect of things that also attaches itself to your identity as like, let's say a member of your ethnic group that also, you know, kind of has some relationship to your understanding of God and the unknown and like the, spiritual world and then like it also kind of ties into your idea of the past and history and, and so like all of these things kind of are sustained and, and weaved together in uh you know a coherent way right that everybody within the given society that we're speaking of like not even agrees on but like is just framed by like even yeah, if you yeah. even if you're like an anarchist and and, and you're you're rejecting everything and you're going and living in the wood. The thing that you're rejecting is the, the same narrative. thing that everybody else understands. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah. So like, I, I think that that idea, the, the, the sort of you know, the general sense of postmodernism is that that kind of notion of a grand narrative, sort of a, a centerpiece to, to everything that we do, a tentpole of our universe is, you know, not only uh, unnecessary, but probably impossible. Right. Like, we question all of those things. We deconstruct all of those things and we, we treat them all as like kind of either like, you know, fancy lies or noble. Right, lies. But it's, a, it's not a choice, right? Like this happened. God died. Right. Like it, it's a historical fact that that happened. Um, we no longer live in that world. And we, 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 we long for it in many ways. Right? <laughs> like that seems to be something of, of, of what's going on. In, in the otaku attempts to rebuild it, at least early otaku, right? Right. To find the narrative in the fiction. Right? But right. anyway, we can get to that. But um, right. yeah, like it's, it's, it's not just like, oh, it was never there. It's that it really does collapse. And in Japan, that seems like so fucking obvious, right? Like, like it literally is pummeled into nothing and they have to rebuild everything. Yeah, like an atom bomb blows. Like, yeah, blows fucking it up. atom bomb blows it up. Exactly. Yeah. But like you know, it's not. It's not even like it happened in Japan first, right? Like it happened in Germany before the war. Yeah. And, like so, like some some political theory would explain the rise of fascism or Nazism as a sort of compensation for this failure of a grand narrative. Right. Or, uh, but at the same time, it hasn't totally failed globally until whatever, 92, because communism is supposedly, like, the last... The last uh, yeah. So, like, uh, so, you know, 
anyway, it, it's probably a, a debate for, you know, uh, grander post people with grander postmodern aspirations than we do to like, actually try to nail down like, you know, when when did it happen or whatever. But the point is, in the seventies in Japan, there was basically like an acceptance that like the grand narrative had failed, uh, and there weren't any legitimate aspects of society who would argue that like it could be rebuilt or that it hadn't failed or that anything like that was was arguable, right? So. So, um, and so for that reason, postmodernism had a kind of a unique acceptance in Japan. It was accepted, uh, as a theory that basically said, like the modern world is over, right? So, uh, like that's a good thing for Japan. Japan never actually properly succeeded in, uh, in the modern world. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. It was never a complete process. They tried. Then they got blown up by, you know, an atom bomb. So, uh, you know, the, 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 the declaration by postmodernism that the modern world has ended, that the, the new phase has begun, was welcomed. And, like, um, is that because of, like, a, that also signals, like, an end to the sort of cultural imperialism of the West? Yeah, I think so. Because I think they identified with, like, with the West as like the technological superiority that had just kind of like arrived in boats. Right. So like, um, like, you know, they were looking forward to a point where like, yeah, just the richest, most advanced countries, uh, were gonna like, you know, be subject to a new set of rules and that, um, Japan could take its place, you know, not only probably as a leader of the Asian world, but, you know, as no longer kind of a second tier um, nation state compared to a Germany or a, a, in the United States or whatever, England, uh, Britain. So, um, yeah, so so like I think that we the way that we kind of think of postmodernism is this annoying kind of chipping away at the past, chipping away at anything we think we can put our hands on and understand. Japan kind of took it the in another direction and they were uh they were enthusiastic about it because it meant that like yeah this stupid monolithic world that's dominated our our lives our grandfather's lives and you know probably before that led to the disastrous you know meiji restoration and you know probably 100 years of japanese history that had had just disappeared in a puff of smoke they were thinking well look we can take a cartoon from the us and uh and and, and break it down and make it cheaper, make it, uh, you know, uh, subject to our own schools of animators and produce something better. Uh, and, and we can do that very successfully. Isn't it good that the world is moving towards a situation where you don't need to be the innovator. You don't need to be the, like the, the producer of the dominant medium or the dominant technology. You, you just need to be, nimble enough to make it work uh on your terms right um oh okay that's interesting yeah okay so that's that's on the content producing side of things right this is the like exciting part of making these cartoons and stuff um what about the consumption well, so the okay, so then and then like so things like uh, 
like Japanese philosophers who would write about postmodern postmodernism would produce like little books and like teenagers would like ride the subway like showing off reading them right so like uh like the the actual idea of postmodernity like was a trendy thing i guess is what he's trying what he was trying to illustrate with all of that right among so, college students kind of thing not only among college students but just among like yuppies like you know like it was okay. like, it wasn't just for like the like kind of turtleneck wearing like uh university student it was like here, eh? but okay yeah <laughs> yeah so the, yeah it, it was it was in the air yeah it was like i don't know like it was it was a cool thing it was it was like every everybody every social group could like you know uh, appreciate this like intellectual theory which is an odd thing to think about right but like i guess like yeah, we're just not like that, and we just maybe never were. But even in Japan, I don't think they're like that anymore. But like, you know, it, it was it was kind of like a, like a a way that like appealed to, you know, not only just a certain set of people, but almost everybody was looking for a way to get past like this failure of of the modern era. And okay, great. So what does it say? So what was the exciting thing about about postmodernism? Yeah, so basically there's no grand narrative, right? So what is that what is there instead, right? Okay. So one of the postmodern theorists, I don't know, it might have been Leotard, it might have been Baudrillard, I forget who. Uh he referenced it in the book. Um basically said instead of a, a grand narrative, right? You have you still have narrative consumption. So People are basically um, programmed to go out and see the world uh, on narrative terms. And think about it. We're literate, right? Like we, we like we understand things by reading, like reading about them. That's not only like the rich, educated people in society. We live in a world where that's everybody. Like everybody can like almost everybody in, in developed countries can read. Right. And we all, you know, so the the novel is not like an elitist thing. It's something that's trickled down from for a couple hundred years to be a very popular art form. Um, television stories are structured around or, or movies and television shows are structured around narratives. Right. Everybody uh, consumes narratives in every aspect of their life. It's, it's almost the only way that, you know, in the 50s and 60s, People were generally absorbing information. Um, right. So we we're story people, and and we're not. So what's what's the significance of the reading part? Like we're not storytellers and story hearers. We're story readers. What's 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 significant about that literacy? Do you think? I mean, I think it's like it sort of goes from a beginning point to an end point, right? So like there's a linearity to it. Um, like if if. You know, if I'm somebody who's just like, uh, like, uh, uh, if I've built up a skill set to understand everything in terms of point A, middle, then to point B, then, you know, I look for that structure everywhere, right? Like, I want to, in order to try to understand something, I want to look at its cause and effect. I want to look at how it progresses. Um, uh, the way that, uh, like, uh, uh, mediums that aren't um, the novel or aren't, text right aren't literary 
work is not always from A to B. Um, and so, you know, in the in the 70s, uh, you're at a point where, you know, television and radio and other mediums are just as common or if not more so as literary ones. Um, you know, society isn't ready yet or people who have who have their own comfort zone aren't ready yet to completely change over into starting to seek out a, like a different like framework or structure for how to understand something beyond just A to B or, or linear straight line. Is that making sense? Do you see, do you see what I'm saying? I'm not sure. So no, can you, can you say what, what's the claim? So then, okay. So like, if there's a grand narrative, then like we all basically, when we, we, if we think there's a truth behind our lives, if we, if we're looking for meaning in the world, if we're looking for deeper answers, right. We are assuming it's going to come in the form of a story or a narrative, right? So when I read the Bible, I'm not just reading letters and words and, and I'm not even just uh, absorbing um, parables or, or folklore. What I'm doing is, uh, I'm, I'm using a, a technical skill I have in terms of reading, and then that's helping me like kind of see through the falseness of, of, you know, everything I don't understand and that, and, and get past that on some level to where the truth is. And that, you know, if I train myself through learning the right stories and, and refining my ability to understand this narrative, then I get the truth. It's right. like that uh, Sopranos episode where, uh, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, where, where Christopher, he's trying to like, uh, he's reading all the screenplay stories and he's saying like, my life, it just goes like this. Yeah. I get up, I go to work, I come home, I can yeah. sit home. Where's my heart? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Is, is this sort of thing? Well, Chrissy, Chrissy Soprano or... Uh, Maltasanti. Maltasanti, yeah. Chrissy Maltasanti is is a a classic figure in the uh, you know the kind of failure of the the grand narrative. Uh, just like dumb people are the most tragic ones, right? Like <laughs> boneheads uh, have the most spectacular way of failing to deal with this problem uh, because it's just like the outbursts of like just saying something that like you know, hilariously um, tragic, but like, you know, kind of stupid is, yeah, that's, that, that kind of is exactly where you're at when you, when you realize that like, no, you know, reading the Bible isn't refining my ability to get at a deeper truth or like, you know, uh, what are like, you know, becoming a smart fucking, you know, becoming like, like reading fucking critical theory is not going to actually fix the things that like I'm afraid are going wrong in the world or like, you know, I'm not going to peer through. um, Oh, I see. So it's a challenge to the idea that like, if you understand the world, this will sort of set you free. Like, like finding, you know, and and I still think that this is true to some extent, but like, I remember reading like Hegel for the first time or reading Marx for the first time and and sort of like going like oh shit right like yeah it all makes sense now mm-hmm. because it fits into this nice system okay right and 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 the system you know it's not like I can describe the system but I can tell the story right yeah. like it starts here 
And then you get, you know, like, um, so it, like that's, that's the kind of skill that you can develop to a very, you know, refined degree. And it can make you feel like you're, um, you know, really, oh, now I really see it. Like, this is really what's going on and we're here and we should be, or we're on our way here. Right? <laughs> yeah. And, and that's what, what collapses. Right. And so, so what's the sort of postmodernist response? Yeah. So, you know, like, um, what is it? Simulacrum theory or whatever. Why? Sure. What do you got? So like there's a, okay. So now, now we're getting into like kind of the techniques, the technicalities of the, of this essay. So there's a double layer structure. So layer one is you see things, right? Like the book you're reading, the language that you understand, the symbols that you're familiar with. And then the second layer is like the truth. And like in a metaphysical, in a world that adhered to metaphysics, like let's say in Hegel's time it did, right? Like in a world that conformed properly to what metaphysics tells us it should, uh, you read the book, you get a little bit closer to a transcendental truth. Uh, simulacrum theory would basically be like the postmodern theory is that there is no, nothing behind the symbols. So, you know, like you're just looking at an elaborate network on a, of symbols on a surface. And like you're basically adrift among them. You get to choose which ones you follow and which ones don't. None of them lead toward the truth, right? Because there is nothing behind them. And so in this essay, he basically posits a different, a slightly different concept, which is like, like, so there's still a double layer structure. It's not just, it's not just surface level symbols. Um, but what's behind it is, and again, I, I think it was Leotard who used this word, a grand non-narrative, right? So, okay. So how does that work? So we're all narratively uh, inclined and so, like, we're looking for, like, a thing behind the symbols. If it's not a narrative, why, like, you're just calling it a non-narrative. That's, wouldn't that just be a void or a nothing or something, right? And um, Azuma's answer for this is that, like, well, no, it's just, it's not, it's not linear. It doesn't really function like a, a story that tells you uh, a series of things that happens. He says it's like a database, so, oh, okay. Yeah, this is good. Keep going. So, so his examples for this, like, and I think these are super intuitive and they make so much sense. Right. And this, this was the thing that I was like, oh, that's postmodernism. Right. Was when he, when he used things like Gundam and what's the neon Genesis Evangelion, you know, and like, I don't really know what those things are. Yeah. Right. But, but you can, you can, but just all you need to really think about is nerd culture. Mm. Right. Where the stories, you know, like like what's important about Star Wars is not actually the Skywalker arc mm. or whatever. Right. It's the fucking database behind it. Yep. Right. And so you actually end up reading the. This, he has this concept of reading up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Do you know? Yeah. It's like it's like. um it's like upvoting, right? So like, you know, like if I, uh, like if, you know, like imager or something like that. So like, um, 
like a website where people just like throw content at it and like whatever sticks sticks, right? If I click like, uh, if enough people click like, my thing moves to the top of the board, right? So it's 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 iteration. It's it's an iterative process in which, um, like the consumer is there, the uh, the, the, this, this, whatever simulacra, the, the different things are there and the different items are there and whoever's like, you know, kind of like if enough consumers are drawn to one, it becomes more important or more significant or more, um, solidified within the canon. Right. Yeah. And this is like, this is fan theory and fan fiction. Exactly. Where, where, um, those things actually become more loved. Than the source material. Yeah, I mean, okay, so like you brought up Star Wars, so like like 2019 had like uh, like an absurd amount of examples uh, of like you know the Western world's version of nerd culture, kind of like climaxing, like in this orgy of gross satisfaction, and it was uh, Game of Thrones ended in 2019. Okay. Um, uh, Avengers came to the end of its like sort of phase three or four cycle, whatever the fuck it is. It's a big one, yeah. The end of like the Robert Downey Jr. whatever Chris yeah. uh, Evans era, and uh, also Star Wars, like uh, the Disney trilogy. Oh yeah, that one just shat itself out. Ended in a, a spectacular, you know, explosion. The best part about this, uh, I think it's this maybe has something to do with the West not understanding as well as Japan does. Um, how to satisfy its nerds is uh, nobody fucking like respected any of these finales. I think the Avengers a bit. Avengers people fucking love that. Movie. People were pretty happy, but they would nitpick about like, like you know, uh, like the nerds would nitpick about how like the Black Widow shouldn't have died, like because like when like you know her character deserved like to be one of the big final finale heroes. And, uh, you know, there was like a bunch of stuff about like, um, just, just not being satisfied exactly with how each character met their end or whatever like that. So this is like, and I guess like moving beyond Avengers game of Thrones was hilarious too, because every episode that came out, there were like eight episodes in the final series. There was just an explosion of hatred for like everything that had happened to every character. Like, oh, this, like, you know, I wanted like a Brienne of Tarth to, uh, you know, not get betrayed by Jamie. You know, he went back to his like hotter girlfriend, which was his sister. But or like, you know, Daenerys. I have no uh, idea what you're talking about. But... All the all the like uh, Hillary Hillary Clinton fans who were like you know, girl power or whatever, like, they were pissed off that Daenerys didn't turn out to be, like, the conquering, like, majestic girl boss that she was supposed to be. Okay, so why is that... What does that have to do with with this otaku thing? I remember the outrage. People were unsatisfied with all of these things. They did not end how they wanted them to. Yeah, so why do, like... Why is there so much, like, interaction between the fan and the product, right? Like... I'm watching a, a movie. Uh, why don't I just like take it for what it is? Why why do I like instantly complain that I thought it would be somehow different? Yeah, why do you? Right. So people didn't used to do this. They just watched Gone with the Wind. Remember Gone with the Wind, folks? 
Well, I don't know. Maybe there was like somebody who thought like, you know, in Gone with the Wind, like, like M- Mommy was, or what was her name? Ma- Ma- Mammy was like, you know, uh, should have had like twin Thompson guns. <laughs> right, and but probably else. not, right? Pro- probably we... not, but yeah, yeah, no. Okay, so fair enough. So, um, yeah, so I guess there's like this iterative component right now right. to like, like f- fiction. So like we expect to um, to have something satisfied uh, at each point, right? And like it's a lot of the times we're pretty pretty perfectly aware that like you know our our um, our, our needs in this respect are pretty frivolous. Like, do I want my favorite character to hook up with my other favorite character? Like, yeah. I do, but like, so what? Like, it's not, it's not like a, it's like, I know that it doesn't change the world. Nonetheless, it's become pretty common for people to like freak the fuck out and complain about it online and like say, I'll never watch another Star Wars movie because like, you know, Ray and Kylo didn't actually hook up, get like Kylo died and Ray didn't get to like marry him or whatever. Right. So like, there's this new element of like, like hysterical dissatisfaction, right? With, with just like a minor plot point that wasn't even well-developed to begin with. But we notice in the progression of like the kind of bouncing around of like familiar characters and like the kind of symbolism of their story arcs and stuff like that we kind of read into, uh, we recognize something that, um, you know, is important to us that has like the kind of semblance of meaning, even though we know it doesn't have a universal truth behind it, but it looks like meaningful, right? It looks important. And at the end of the day, we've invested so much into it that when Kylo and Ray kiss, but he dies, like, like our boner is like not quite like as hard as it could be. Like we wanted a, a bit of a harder boner out of that whole situation. And like, we think we know better than the 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 story makers, the you know the showrunners. Yeah, no, I think that's the best part. Yeah, yeah. Go on. You know how we could have achieved that, right? And um, this type of consumption isn't really narrative consumption, again, right? Like, so we're not really going out and buying a book and being like, oh, that like kind of left me with like a strange feeling. Oh, how interesting, right? Like, we're going out and buying a series of tropes and symbols and we're saying like i expect this to show me like fucking i don't know what's a funny one like uh i expect this to show me that like you know men are like better than women so like i'm pissed off when i go to mad max and like imperator furiosa is like cooler than max Right. Or like more, more like tough or whatever, right. and like that kind of thing just like makes me like shit my pants. And I know, like, because her name is Imperator Furiosa, that this isn't like a serious like work of metaphysical truth. I know that I'm dealing with like just a kind of a collection of like things from my childhood that were meant to like kind of get me excited and horny as like a like a like eleven year old, but instead I'm saying like fuck this i'm never watching another george miller movie again because he made a lady girl like the like the cool person or whatever 
right? So like that's the like level at which we're able to understand right. story. But time. I can recut the movie myself on my iMac. iMac. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying, right? Like I can I can recut the movie and make make the better version that really should have existed because all it really is is a collection of signifiers anyway, right? And so like I can read it up. Yeah. Right? Isn't that the idea? Yeah, yeah. Or even better, you know what Rule 34 is? This is my favorite thing. No, I don't know. What's Rule 34? Rule 34 is that if there if if it exists, there's been porn made out of it. Right? right. If there's a concept, like you can look it up having sex. So like uh, you know, My Little Pony, easy one. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, like um uh Professor Snape and Harry Potter, really easy one. Right? Uh like, you know, um like just the concept of cold fusion also subject to rule 34 even though it's not so easy you can whack off to that too right so like this is my favorite thing about this is one of the most endearing things about the internet is whatever stupid developmental phase someone's in like you're like you're just horny for i don't know like digimon or whatever like because you're 11 or well, I don't know what eleven year olds watch now, but like you know, Gears of War or something. But like, <laughs> that's quite the shit. You can fucking look at it naked on the internet, right? Yeah. Like drawing right. up some okay. drawn pregnant version of it, you can look at. Okay. And like, and that in a sense is like where otaku kind of, I mean, can wind up is that like you're you're not really you don't like you're you're just kind of like investing your kind of base desires into the shit that you read or that you look at or or watch for entertainment you're not looking for any like further truth right you're not looking you're not reading like jane eyre and thinking like oh now i understand human beings you're just kind of like a horny like kind of hungry dirty person and like there's stuff out there for you to watch so you know at this point you you you're like the like the technology and the expertise is there, right? So right. they know what people want. Uh, and now the question is, if they provide it to us, what will we do with it? Right. And the answer is we'll shit on it and we'll try to make like, – we'll there's something kind of neat about that, right? Yeah. Like there's something punk and DIY about it that like, you know, I don't want to acknowledge is there. But it's totally there, right? Which is that like, well, I could have put those chords together better. You know, and like, you know, like I, I can play G, C and D too. Like I can, I can fucking make that better. Right. And there's something nice about, about even fucking porn or fan fiction or whatever, right. Versions of these things. And like the fan recuts of star Wars or whatever, like, didn't they do that with the prequels where they took them all and somebody cut them into one movie. And it's like, actually like, that's actually a pretty good movie. Instead <laughs> of this long drawn out awful thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, Right. Like, like that's that's what's going on there. Right. Like we're not buying stories that are beyond the signifiers. We're buying a certain collection of signifiers that could have been arranged differently. Right. Mm -hmm. And to greater effect, because what we want is that cheap thrill, not not the grand narrative. Yeah. So what do you mean by greater, greater effect, though? I mean, doesn't it like doesn't it seem proven by things like Rule 34 and by like whatever else that, you know, like basically what we want to do 
is just like fuck things. Yeah, we just want to fuck <laughs> their, like oh, yeah. cartoons, right? So like, just want to fuck cartoons. Yeah, maybe. You know that's not really a higher level at all. Like we're just kind of reducing the elements of storytelling down to kind of satisfying like our desire to, uh, to just like kind of like our kind of more reptilian kind of desires, right. To just yeah. like, eat, eat, kill and, and, and fuck. And like, uh, you know, I guess, I guess the, like, you know, the point made in, in the essay we're talking about and, and the point kind of, about postmodernism and the failure of, of, of metaphysics and all that is that like, you know, yeah, we have like kind of the technology to produce advanced kind of like entertainment, like entertainment on like this level of like, you know, like some poor French bastard in the 18th century would be like reading his novel and being like, oh, I wish I could see the, you know, the colors and the people like sort of fighting. But like, instead of, like doing what that guy like kind of imagined as like this transcendental experience. We're just like trying to whack off to like a more complex set of symbols. Like we're, we're not trying to use it uh, to refine ourselves and become more like, you know, elevated. We're basically just familiar with a more elevated and complex type of basic need, which is, to get horny for like, you know, spiky haired, big boob, like maids and schoolgirls and stuff and like animal. So that's kind of like the, the, like the funniest upshot of, of the otaku essay is that like, you know, postmodernism has allowed, and we didn't really talk very much about Japanese like cartoons, but like it kind of allows the like, the, the creators to break down entertainment into a series of just like simple signifiers. Yeah. I think that's, that's the interesting part, right? Is that like, that's what we're consuming now, right? Yeah. Is like, nobody's even making stories anymore. They're making that. Right? Well, right. Because like, yeah, once, once the producers break it down into a series of simple signifiers, then what's the difference between my fanfic and there, there like, is no difference. It's well, like, all fanfic. Like all the Avengers movies yeah. are fanfic. Yeah, exactly. Like, the, the last three seasons of Game of Thrones are fanfic, and the last the three Star Wars ones are obviously fanfic. The Disney ones, like, yeah. like the last one, and Scorsese said it was like a theme park ride. It's literally like a theme park ride. Like you just literally go up the thing. Until you see R two D two do something, and then you're like, "Oh, R two D two," and then you go back down, <laughs> up the thing again, and it's like, then you see like Chewbacca do something, but also like fucking Kylo Ren with his shirt off, and you go, "Whoa, all the things I wanted to see just happened." And then like you go down again, and then you go up again. And there's like the Millennium Falcon flying, whoa, and then like you know, like you're just like this like stupid child, like kind of chasing around like the like best parts of a theme park ride. And you're not even sure why you sat through the rest of the movie. Like, you just wanted to see, like, I don't know, like a cell phone ad where BB-8 comes by and bleeps. But, like, that's that's all you need. That's all you're asking for. You're not asking for anything else. It's just, you know, fanfic. And, like, I don't know. I don't think that is elevated, like, uh, by anybody. Like, I don't think J.J. Abrams, as the best fanfic guy ever, like, is doing great work. I think he's doing like very satisfying theme park rides 
that you can sit in a chair and not like, you know, pay a lot of money and wait in line for, but like, it's not really like, you know, there's no movie there. It's just like kind of a ride. And, you know, I can appreciate it for that, but like, yeah, there's not much else left other than that, you know, to watch. And, uh, yeah, I don't think that is any better. I think it was better in the seventies for sure. Before, like they all knew how to do that. So there you go. I think that's that's a pretty good place to end it, right? So, like, um, yeah, as an introduction to postmodern theory, right, uh, or postmodern literary criticism, or whatever, and as a way of reading, um, you know, media, right? Uh, that that seems to be the the neat thing that this book has taught us. Yeah, and think about what that does to you when you when you try and read into a political candidate or like some kind oh, of yeah. like you know large national debate about something important, and how you deal with that, right? Like, are you not just like whacking off to it? Are you not kind of? Um, are you not satisfied? You're not. Well, you are actually yeah. by like the worst impulses possible. Like, uh, I mean, I, I think that this is like the the stupid vacuum that that like you know political discourse is is like i am probably more likely to have a sustained argument about like i don't know um what like whether like you know and on and like a fully earnest political argument is likely to happen around like what i fucking saw between uh chris cuomo and like some fucking celebrity guest on his show as I am about like, you know, like the structure of voting booths or something that has like devastated the democratic primaries this year. Like I'm not going to be able to care about those things. I will only care if like my faves and my, my sweeties are, are talking about it and are like contextualizing it in a way that like makes me aroused or like, you know, stupidly uh, fascinated. I mean, I, I, I really think that that like that it's not just a matter of our entertainment has been changed and our um, our fucking our junk food is 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 junkier. But I think it's like like our entire way of um, like we're, we're not like, yes, we're still literate, but like we're not reading things literately, literacy yeah, yeah, read things like yeah. I mean, I think this this essay was was generally more sympathetic to otaku than that. I think, um, you know, there's a lot more that that we could have talked about in the essay, and, and you know, obviously we can't go into Maybe each. Maybe there will be a part two. Be nice. It'd be nice. But I, I do think that there's there's another way in which that like he kind of says like, you know, uh, like this way of this way of structuring thinking did kind of transform the entire world and not just Japan, but Japan kind of led the world in a transformation of how, how it thinks about things. And to be honest, there are ways in which replacing the modern paradigm are good. So I don't know, like up for debate, but like, uh, you know, the way from where we're sitting now, it does seem like we just want to fucking like, you know, chant slogans and, shit on people's porches rather than have like, you know, some kind of, uh, meaningful way of dealing with the you know public space. And I think that's like directly related to what he writes about in the sense. 